All right, I want you to use your imagination for a second. I want you to picture something, probably for some of us in some old movies or old news clips that we've seen. Uh, there's been a war. The war is over. And the victorious army and the general is coming into the city after defeating the enemy and freeing the people. There's a great, great celebration. Perhaps you might picture a hometown team uh, winning a championship and the, and the festivities in the city and all the people celebrating or a motorcade that might come into a town or something like that, a procession of vehicles carrying a person of great prominence. Now, back in the ancient world, uh, there would be beautiful carriages drawn by beautiful horses, and a lot of times near the end would be the mighty warrior king, the king who had led the troops into battle or maybe even conquered that city, and he would often be riding a big horse. Well, now today, 20 chapters, after 20 chapters of the life of Jesus, we enter Jerusalem with King Jesus, and I want you to picture yourself as being there. But you're someone who has only heard of Jesus of Nazareth. You don't know much about him. Uh, you know that so, you're, you're a local resident of Jerusalem, and you know that some of the country folk from Galilee think that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king that has come to Jerusalem uh, to deliver them from the Roman Empire, something that the city of Jerusalem has been looking forward to for many, many years. Maybe you've heard about Jesus's miracles and how he taught with authority. Or as we're told in the Gospel of John, maybe you have heard that in just the next town, just a day or two earlier, a fellow by the name of Lazarus was dead. Several days, Jesus went to the tomb and called a dead man back to life. So you hear the crowds. It's the Passover season. The, 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 the town is just hopping. There's people everywhere. They're traveling from all over the land to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. There's all kinds of excitement. And you're watching these people. They're coming into the city and you're thinking, where is this king? Where is this king? And, and, you're, and you've got your kids with you. And, and maybe there's a little boy. You know, those little boys, they can never keep their mouth quiet. And you, and you say, okay, listen, this is what's going to happen. When you see the guy on a big horse, that's the king. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes into the city. And the boy blurts out the title of our message. The king is on a donkey? <laughs> shh, shh, shh. Don't say anything. You know, boys, they remember for what, like five, ten seconds at most? Sometimes not even that long. I can say that because I am one and I, I have two. And after saying the king is on a donkey, he just blurts out, that's not going to scare the Romans. But that's what was going on. They were expecting a great king to dispose the Roman Empire out of their city and out of their country. And so this fellow Jesus comes into town on a donkey. Some of us like to think, oh, yes, I know this one. I know this one. Good. Finally, a Bible thing I know. This is Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. I remember Palm Sunday when I was a kid. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's the only time they gave you anything when you were walking in the church, right? And so they give you palms, and then you take them, and then you would, I would just use them as a sword the whole rest of the day, tormenting my little brother and sister. You know, he's hitting us with the sword, with the palms and stuff like that. And my mother like, that's not the point. I'm like, what is the point? She's like, it's church. Just shut up. Right? So, so. So here we have Palm Sunday. We have the triumphal entry, and we say, I know all about it. I got it. I got it. Let's pray, right? But do we really know all about it? Have we thought through it very much? We face the same challenge, I think, that the people in Jerusalem for the Passover faced 2,000 years ago regarding Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, well, first off, if you're not, thank you for coming. We're really glad that, that you're here. Followers of Jesus know that Jesus is king, but here's the problem that we all have to get over. We have to let Jesus define his kingship. 
we cannot define his kingship or we are sure uh, to be wrong. And, and in the ancient world, again, the, the king came in on a horse. In the ancient world, kings were men of war. The greatest king of Israel, King David, was a man of war. And now this king comes in as the prince of peace, humbly on a donkey. All four gospel writers record this triumphal entry, also known as Palm Sunday. So I think that lets us know it's very, very important that we pay careful attention to what the Lord wants to teach us. So, are you ready? Here we go. It's all going down now. We're going into Jerusalem to look at the last week of Jesus' life. A lot of people debate the dates. We'll go with the classic dating. Most Bible scholars think it's the Sunday morning before the cross and the resurrection. So it's only a matter of the end of the week where Jesus is going to die. Yet this is 30, it's 30% of the gospel. The other gospels have similar ratios. That's how important that last week is. In chapter 21, verse 1 says, now. Now, it's like Matthew's telling us, here we go. Get ready. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. If you're from Long Island, it's Bethpage. I'm from Long Island. I'm like, what's that Bethphage? And came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Now, that right there at the Mount of Olives, they could overlook the temple. Could be a picture of uh, 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14, talking about the divine king overlooking the temple. We're going to come across Zechariah in a few moments. Then Jesus sent two disciples. What were their names? We're not told. I don't think it was James or John or Peter, because every time they were off on their own, they got in trouble. So Jesus had to keep an eye on them. He always kept them close. People are like, why are they your three favorites? He goes, because they're always in trouble. So he sent two disciples, no names, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, in other words, here's the password. Here's the password. The Lord, not a Lord, not Jesus, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he, the guy who owns the donkeys, will send them. So they draw close to Jerusalem. Jesus just told us a couple weeks ago again that that what was going to happen in Jerusalem, he knows that his, his time has come. He knows it's time to fulfill his destiny. He's going to confront the religious leaders. He's going to be arrested. He's going to die on the cross for our sins. And he's going to rise from the dead. Along the way, he's going to fulfill and has been fulfilling various prophecies. Now fully, or we might say more obviously, disclosing himself to be the Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. And so now it is time for Jesus to complete his mission, the redemption of humanity. Remember we talked a few weeks ago, a ransom for many to pay for our sins. Sadly, as we shall see throughout this week, many miss the Savior King and still do today. So Jesus tells two of his disciples to head into a village, go into the next village, and when you see a donkey with its young colt, with its baby, bring them to me. Now, Bible skeptics like to debate, and they say, well, oh, something's wrong, something's wrong. And, and it's, uh, they'll say that uh, Matthew and Luke only talk about the colt, only the baby that Jesus rode. So obviously the, the Bible's wrong. Well, that doesn't mean the mother was there. If, if I invited you to a party and, and you brought a friend, and somebody said, who was at the party? And I told some, oh, you were there. And I didn't mention your friend. Does that mean your friend wasn't there? It just means that I didn't happen to mention them. And so Matthew, showing us the fulfilling of Scripture, he's going to, uh, he takes a different look at it. So he doesn't, he doesn't mention the fact that there was a cult. Others debate, was this divine foreknowledge? 
Did Jesus know what was going to happen? And just simply the password would, would get it, or did he make prior arrangements? The simple answer is this. We're not told. We're not told. Jesus simply says, when you go into this village, you're going to see a donkey and you're going to see its, ba- uh, its baby. Untie it, and if the cops bust you for donkey jacking, <laughs> Mark does tell us that people are like, hey, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? <laughs> I remember one time I was with some friends when I much younger. We were down at the University of Pennsylvania visiting some friends, and uh, some kids came by on a bike, and uh, some of my friends said, oh, isn't that nice? They're going for a bike ride on the campus. I said, they're not going for a bike ride on the campus. They're stealing bikes. <laughs> sure enough, later, two minutes later, the cops come rolling down. And so they're, they're, they're there, and, and, and if people say anything, Jesus says, simply say to them, the Lord has need of them. Now, that's kind of interesting. We ask the Lord for stuff, don't we? Like, what, what, what do you mean? He, he's going to ask us for stuff? Now, we have to be really careful about this. Did you ever watch any of those movies about Jesus? He looks like the dullest person on the face of the earth, almost like a robot. And so it's very easy for us to think that Jesus sends out his, his guys and um, sort of like some Luke Skywalker thing. You know, they, they walk into town. And the people are like, you can't take the donkeys. You can't take the donkeys. And the the, the apostles there put their hoodies up. And they're like, you will give us the donkeys. (laughs) That is is not what's, what's going on here. Jesus says, listen, as long as when they say anything to you, as long as you say, right, the Lord has need of them. He, the owner of the donkeys, will say, they're yours. Go ahead, take them. Now, I can't tell you what it is, whether it's divine knowledge or advanced arrangements. Uh, Matthew has not told us a lot about Jesus, really anything about his time in Jerusalem. John fills in a lot of those gaps for us. But I can tell you two things that I want. I want to be a disciple of Jesus that he feels is responsible enough to send on an errand. I want to be that. That I want to be. And the other thing I want to be is I want to be a guy who's willing to give his resources for the work of the Lord. And so here we have these two disciples. They're going on the errand. We have this guy who's going to give his donkey and his colt his resources for the work of the Lord. Notice there is no complaining. No complaining mentioned. I mean, imagine the two disciples. They're like, I can't believe this. Peter shoots off his mouth and he gets all the good jobs. We got to go get the donkeys. I'm easy kidding us. I can't believe it. And not only that, our name's not even in the Bible. (laughs) I mean, those guys disobey and they get their name in the Bible. We go do what we're told and our name's not in the Bible. No, there's no complaining there. What about the guy who who gives up his donkey? You know, a lot of times they used him for work or transportation. He's not going, how am I supposed to make a living now? Now i got to walk everywhere. This This is absolutely terrible. And I think those two scenarios bring up some important points for us to think about. When, when, when Jesus sends these two apostles on this seemingly insignificant task or errand, will we be like Jesus and take the humble position? Or do we expect notoriety? Would we be angered that we got that trivial task? Would we be upset that our name wasn't in the Bible? Would we be like, oh, I want, I want my... I want my job to be seen. I want want people to see what I do. Or would we do what we do just for the sake of doing it for Jesus? How about this, too? Jesus told them to do it. Would we be like, 
Who does he think he is, God? Like, what's the deal with that? He didn't even ask us. He told us to do it. So let me ask you a question, friend. Can people tell you what to do? Or do you have to be asked? Do they walk on eggshells at the prospect of telling you to do something? Do you ever think of that? Maybe a, 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 you're at your job, they're in a meeting, like, hey, somebody's got to tell so-and-so to do that. I ain't telling them. I ain't telling them. I ain't telling them. All these type A personalities going, I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. I ain't doing it. And what about the guy who gave up his, his donkey and his colt? You know, here's the reality of being a Christian. You and I, we have to give up some of the things we have to honor Jesus. We have to. It's just the way it is. And our, our sacrifice and our generation, it actually tells a story. It tells a story not to God. He knows. It tells, it tells a story to, to our friends and it tells a story to us of what Jesus really means to us, that we're willing to give up certain things for him. Now, if, if you're in a community group, that, that question is not in your questions this week. But you might want to jot that down and ask the people in your group because, or just ask yourself if you're not in a group, what are you holding back from Jesus? What are you holding back? What are you unwilling to give over to him, whether it's a, it's a possession, it's a sin, it's a time, it's a reputation, whatever it is, what are you holding back? And what effect is holding that back having on your spiritual life? What effect is that having on your spiritual growth? There's another interesting question here. Does the Lord have need of anything? Now, most of us would go, no, but here he does. What does he need? He needs something to fulfill a 500-year-old prophecy. He says in verse 4 and 5, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and and it's primarily he's promoting, he's uh, He's quoting Zechariah 9.9, but this is what we call a mixed citation. Bible writers do it a lot as they combine verses, probably something's from Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 62.11, and he says this, and he quotes this Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah, tell the daughters of Zion, those would be the people of Jerusalem, behold, your king, now remember this is written 500 years before Jesus came, Your king, your Messiah, is coming to you lowly. Some versions say humble. Other versions say meek. I mean, I think that's the point we're supposed to get here. And sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, some people say, what in the world is a, is a foal or a colt? Um, typically, that would be a male horse or a donkey uh, up to one year old. Now, you say that sounds kind of cruel. A, a, a one-year-old donkey or horse could support a human. You say, you're a pastor. How do you know? I grew up across the street from a horse stable my whole life. And 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 so... Mark tells us that this was a cult that had never been ridden before. Actually, there's a lot of symbolism there because in the ancient world, no one ever rode the king's mount. That was part of the part of the mystique, if you will, of being the king. No one ever rode his war horse. He was never ridden before. And so the picture of that we are supposed to see here is not only of Jesus fulfilling prophecy, but being the king who comes in on an animal that has never been ridden before. Unlike the kings who would come in on on a chariot or on a war horse, this king comes in or the king comes in lowly. He comes in as a servant. You know, just imagine, you know, 
you hear the stories, the, the president comes into town. And I guess in the past 20 or 30 years, probably actually since Watergate, no, there's not been as much pomp and circumstance other than like, ah, he creates so much traffic. But Air Force One comes into town and there's a huge motorcade. Not Jesus. Now Jesus comes in in, a, on a, in an old pickup truck. <laughs> Leaking oil. <laughs> that, that, that's totally him. He's, he's like a contractor in a beat-up van, right? His wife's like, don't park in the driveway. You're leaking oil all over, and transmission fluid all over the drive. He comes in in, this, in, his old, in his old ride. But a donkey was an animal of work. Jesus has work to do. It was an animal of peace a fitting mount for the Prince of Peace on a mission to establish peace between God and man. Interesting, the scripture teaches that we are not at peace with God until we put our trust in his Savior King, the Lord Jesus. The people, the people wanted a, a king on a war horse, but, but Jesus knew who he was. And he also knew that only those with spiritual eyes can see such things. It's kind of interesting. Both then and now, um, what you drive says a lot about you. Did you know that? Your ride says a lot about you. Uh, a big joke around this church for years, those of you who, who are newer here, was that for years I, I drove a minivan. And that's because I had three little kids. And, and I used to call it the chick magnet. <laughs> People would say, how's it a chick magnet? I said, it speaks of stability. It speaks of a man who knows who he is. Sam Walton, read his, I read his biography, the, the founder of Walmart. We always talk about the richest people in the world. If you put his kids together, they're the richest. And... Uh, they interviewed him and they said, when he was alive, they said, you're the richest man in the world. Why does the richest man in the world drive a pickup truck? His answer, where else are you going to fit your hunting dogs? <laughs> yeah, your ride says a lot about you. Jesus comes in on a donkey. Now, small side note for those of you who may be equestrians of some sort. Uh, you're, you're like, you just don't hop on a colt and go. Uh, again, I lived across the street from a horse stable. Um, my next door neighbor uh, was on the 1986 World Cup championship team in polo in Berlin. Serious horse people. Yeah, don't, don't think little, little guy, big guy, big guy. Whole, uh, people say, what's polo? Have you played polo? I have played polo. People are like, what's polo like? I said, it's like hockey on horses. <laughs> I mean, black eyes, no teeth. I mean, it's just terrible. It's terrible. Breaking in an unwritten before animal is no easy task. It is a very, very difficult thing unless you're God. Unless you're God. And yet Jesus calmly rides this animal, uh, some would say into the city, but he is really riding to the cross, and the victory will be over death for Jesus, and over death for all who will put their trust in him. Jesus comes lowly, a word that can also mean suffering. So we can see that the sovereign Lord, the sovereign king, is also the suffering servant. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 53. And fulfilling the prophecies of Zechariah 9. For your homework, you might want to read the whole chapter in verses 8 through 10 specifically. We notice that only part of the prophecy is fulfilled. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, it is not too late for you to have the forgiveness of sins and to go to heaven. Verse 6 says, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus will teach us the importance of being faithful in the little things or being faithful in a few things. What a, what a great goal to have for all of us to, to be 
faithful in the little things, to be faithful in a few things, and how that pleases God and and how that can be a gateway to more kingdom responsibility. The same is true in your career. If you can't be trusted with little things, why in the world would anybody give you bigger things to do? Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt. Now, this is very interesting. Again, I'm just thinking from my upbringing. It seems to me that, that bringing this little colt into this big crowd would be, would be stressful for the animal. And so Jesus doesn't want to stress this young animal so he doesn't take him away from his mother as they go into the crowd. So they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them. Now let's just stop there for a second. When a king would come into town on a war horse, his horse would be draped with these beautiful garments. They would have engraved the, the insignia of their kingdom. They would almost be like these beautiful woven tapestries. And Jesus is coming in and they drape his donkey with the clothes of peasants. And so it says that they laid their clothes on them and they set him on them. Now, some people debate, did he set them on, did they set Jesus on the clothes or on the donkeys? Well, it would have to be the clothes. Some people are suggesting that Jesus is riding the two animals at the same time. I'm like, what is he, a clown in the circus? <laughs> like, hey, it's the king. Look at him. Hey, look at me, everybody. You know, I should be on TV. I, I, sometimes I read these guys. I'm like, these are smart people. I don't know how they get into these things. <laughs> Verse 8, and the very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees. There's John's gospel tells us that they were palm branches and spread them on the road. This is both symbolic, and it's also to do something else. It's actually to make the king's ride more comfortable because the roads were not too great back then. And so by spreading layers of stuff, there would be a cushioning effect. Verse 9, I want to read two times because we have to interrupt it so badly. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, then the multitudes who went before. People say, well, how are there people before him and how after? It's probably the people who live in Jerusalem who hear that he is coming and they are before him and they are waiting for him to come into the city. And then it says, and, and they went, and those who followed him, probably the people from Galilee, could, could be thousands of people that are following their great prophet of, of, we'll see that in a minute. And they cried out, they kept crying out, the crowds are crying out, the people of Jerusalem, the people that are come with Jesus, the people that are come from all over for the Passover, they're crying out, saying, Hosanna. Basically, that means, Lord, save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name. Uh, Coming in the name can be uh, representing someone. I come in so-and-so's name. We pray in Jesus' name. We ask Jesus to represent us to the Father. If you don't always understand what that means, there's an easy illustration. Let's say you're new to town and you need to get your car fixed. You go to your neighbor and you say, do you know a good car mechanic? He goes, I got, I got a great car mechanic. He's a fabulous guy. I've been going to him for years, know him well. So my whole family goes there. You got you to go there. And you say, but when you go there, make sure you tell them, I sent you. You're going in my name. And so they they are attributing this to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a direct quotation from the Old Testament, Psalm 118.26. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us from heaven. So they laid the clothes on the street, the palms on the street. 
the victorious king has come to town yet again. We cannot miss the fact that the King Jesus' victory will be achieved on the cross. Last week, we looked in Matthew's gospel at two men who were calling Jesus the son of David, which was a declaration of the kingly role of the Messiah. Now the crowds are calling out the same thing. Before it was two blind men. Now it's the crowds calling out son of David. And they add, Hosanna, save us, even praising God in heaven for sending Jesus to their city. So their shouts are both a prayer and a praise combined. Praise the Lord. The deliverer has come to save us. But they were looking for a deliverer to save them from the Roman Empire. Not what we were told in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel said to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. So the scene is one here of great excitement, great anticipation. Jesus is finally, (laughs) I can't imagine how bewildered the apostles must have been through all of this. Remember, we're reading it. We know the end of the story. They are living it in real time. He doesn't want anybody to know. He wants everybody to know, right? He's doing this. He's not doing that. What's going on with these? He's confusing us. And, and now Jesus is finally openly and declaring himself to be king. He rides in and the people praise him. But now he doesn't say, oh, no, stop. Remember before he told people, okay, don't tell anyone. Now he doesn't stop. He's letting people praise him. But that really shouldn't surprise us because when we all throughout the Gospels, we constantly see Jesus claiming to be God. Constantly. He just doesn't say it in a way that Americans want to hear it. And they knew if they knew fully who he was. That's going to be the charge of the religious leaders. You being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. And he doesn't go, oh, you got me all wrong. No, he doesn't do it at that at all. Jesus is out there declaring himself to be God both humbly and boldly. Now, sometimes we read the Bible and we we look at Jesus in the humble sense and we think that's easy to see. He walks up to people and, and he has compassion and he heals people and he touches people and he loves people, but we miss the boldness. The boldness is he's going around, particularly in John's gospel, but we've been seeing it repeatedly in Matthew's gospel, calling himself God. In John's gospel, over and over again, he's using the phrase, I am. The name of God, we hear that and we're like, okay, you know, I am the door. I am the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. Like, oh, good for you, Jesus. The, The people who didn't believe in him are like, I can't believe what he's saying. Or how about this? In a culture that valued family over just about anything. He says, hey, man, if you love your family more than me, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of my kingdom. But, you know, the gospel makes us both humble and bold. Didn't you know that? We are humbled that we are such sinners that God would have to send his son to die for us. But when we realize that he wanted to die for us, that makes us bold. That empowers us because we know the love of the Savior King. So on the one hand, Jesus is so humble and compassionate. On the other hand, he's constantly telling people who he is. God become a man. It's so interesting that, you know, many people, particularly in this day, they they hate Christianity. They hate church. Even a lot of people who say they are Christians, they hate church. They're like, I love Jesus. I hate the church. We said this before. That's like me going to you like, I like you, man, but I can't stand your wife. So if you want to have me over for dinner, make sure she's not home. I mean, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. A lot of people hate Christians, but a lot of people are okay with Jesus. They're okay with him. They don't like his name. Like, don't say his name, but, but they're kind of okay with him. 
They'll say stuff like, well, he was a good teacher and he just wanted peace. All right, let, let's tackle good teacher first. Here's a guy going around telling people he's God. Do you believe he's God? No. Then you don't think he's a good teacher. You think he's a nut job. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't believe that. Other people say he, he came to bring peace. This is not going to be a week of peace. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide families. That's how divisive following me is. Yet everything is going according to the plan laid out in the Old Testament prophecies. Written hundreds of years before Jesus lived over and over and over again. It's like Jesus is God. Verse 10, we want to read this one two times as well. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? And it says, and when he had come into Jerusalem. Notice there's all these crowds, right? But Matthew is really trying to keep our eyes on Jesus. Right? Just, just keep focusing on the king on the donkey. Keep, it, keep your eyes there. When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Another version says stirred. These are some other versions. Shaken, shocked, wild with excitement, thrown into commotion. Saying, who is this? Now, in one sense, it's almost comical. All these people are praising Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, worthy is the king. The king is here. The king is here. And then they're turning to their friend going, who is this guy? <laughs> like, they're so caught up in everything. So in that sense, it's funny. But in another sense, it tells us how critical our mission is to tell people about the real Jesus. Because all across our area this morning, all across the United States of America this morning, there are people in churches, they are singing songs, they are saying prayers, they are volunteering maybe some time, the collection plate comes by, they're throwing a few shekels in, and they cannot answer this question. Who this is. So friend, let me ask you today, not as a point to make anybody feel guilty, but as a soul-searching question. If you were there, would someone, and someone asked you, would you be able to answer? Or if right now someone just came to you and they said, I've been reading the Bible about this Jesus cat, this Jesus dude, who is this? Would you be able to answer that question and would you be able to explain why he is so controversial? Verse 11. So the multitude said, now the answer is true but inadequate. And that's why sometimes we have to watch what people say about Jesus because there's, there's some truth, but it's not everything. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Nazareth was a little tiny hole in the wall town. The expression was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was, it was a small town, so there'd be very few people there from Nazareth. But many people would be there from the region of Galilee. Galilee was big. That's primarily where Jesus' ministry was as we've, as we've gone through the first 20 chapters. And so there'd be a lot of people there from Galilee. And so maybe there's some hometown pride here. You know, hey, 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 this is our boy. This is our boy. Local boy makes good. We're so excited. Now, the people in Jerusalem, they were sophisticated. They would be like, oh, he's a country hick. What's the point of, of, of listening to him? 
The religious leaders, though, take a completely different stance. They know this guy means trouble. John chapter 12, this is what they say about him. They say, see, the whole world is following after him. They are beginning to feel the loss of the grip of their power over the people. As we're going to see, false religion is filled with scandalous dishonesty. And some of these guys in the temple were making in our dollars today millions, hundreds of millions, maybe even billions off of tourists during these times of years, making it on the exchange rates and and, and, and telling them that their animal wasn't good enough, putting it in the back room, selling them another animal. Then somebody else comes in an hour later, they buy your bad animal, and then it's sold to somebody else. And they go, well, here's, here's 100. And they go, well, in our money, that's only worth 50. Terrible thing. You, said it sounds, you say, that sounds like the mafia. Yeah, it was. Many Bible scholars think that about this time, there's, there's a half a million to about two million people in Jerusalem this week. Jerusalem is not that big a city. Huge for an ancient city, especially when you realize that most people had to walk to it to get to it. To be called a prophet was a great honor. Most of the prophets either performed miracles or spoke for God, but Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Moses did miracles and spoke for God. Moses was the mediator between God and the people. And Jesus is the mediator, the scripture tells us, between God and man. But on his next visit to Jerusalem, which is recorded in Luke chapter 19, we're told that Jesus wept over the city because he says, you did not know the time of your, visita- of your visitation. So, so what's, what's going on? Well, how did they not know? They were right in what they said about Jesus being a king, being a messiah, but they were wrong about how he would go about it. They wanted to fight Rome, and he wanted to fight death. They were were wrong who the enemy was. They thought the enemy was Rome. But Jesus is going to make it very plain. This week, the enemy is bad religion and ultimately death. You say, well, how, how could they not know? How could they not see? The same reason why people today don't know and don't see because they wanted God, they wanted Jesus, they wanted the king on their own terms. And when we want God, when we want Jesus on our own terms, you know a lot of people, friends that you have, they don't read the Bible at all, and they give you their opinions of Jesus. And you go, you've never read about him, have you? And they go, no. Because when we want Jesus on our own terms, as we saw last week, we will end up spiritually blind. In the Old Testament, there was essentially three great offices, the office of prophet priest, and king. Nobody was all three. Nobody was all three. Anytime a guy tried to be all three, he'd end up in trouble. But until Jesus came, when he was all three. You see, the problem that they had was the same as ours. It's it's easy to want Jesus to be the one office we like and forget the other. Or forget the other two. Maybe, maybe we see one or two things. We like, the, we like the prophet and the priest, but we don't like the king. Or we like the prophet and the king, but we don't like the priest. That's why it's so important that we let Jesus present his kingship to us. And we don't define Jesus' kingship ourselves. 
we let the Bible writers show us who Jesus really is. You say, well, why is that so important? Is it really that big a deal? It's a huge deal. You know why? It's a huge deal because the Savior we usually want is not the Savior that we need. How often we want the Savior to take us, take our problems away today because we like to live in the moment instead of the Savior who takes away our sins for all eternity. We want the Savior that's going to fix this or fix that, not the Savior who wants to walk through all of our problems with us so we can know him more deeply and become more close to him. As a prophet, Jesus spoke for God like the one that Moses told us would come way back in Deuteronomy 18. A great teacher who spoke with the authority of God. And people listened to Jesus' teaching, and a lot of people liked it, but a lot of people resented it. One thing they really resented is what they resent today about Jesus' teaching. People don't want to be told how to live, do they? And Jesus told people how to live. They don't like the fact that Jesus pronounced judgment, the judgment of God on sin or the judgment of God on false religion, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing. Yet it seems to me that far fewer saw Jesus as a priest. I mean, he was a carpenter from Galilee. He didn't, he didn't perform services or conduct services in the temple. And what is this stuff that, he, that he's come to, to fix false religion? But that's because the scripture tells us that Jesus is the great high priest. And he would do more than any other priest. The priest offered sacrifices to God for sins. But on the cross, Jesus would be the final sacrifice himself for sins. As we said, many wanted a king to toss the Romans out, to fix their economy and make life easier so they could be happy. Oh, wait, that's American, sorry. Isn't that what we want? People vote for whoever they think is going to make their life easier and happy. But as we said, Jesus came to bring peace between God and man his own death on the cross and Jesus brings the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven to all who will turn to God and put their trust in him this king offers us hope this king offers us a new way to live and Matthew who is an eyewitness to all of this writes to us and has and will continue to call us to come to this king. And when you read the scriptures, you always get that sense of urgency. It's not like, well, well, come when you're ready. Or come when you feel like it. Or come when you get your life all together. News report, you're not going to get your life all together. No, there's an urgency. Come now. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. You say, why is there such urgency about it? Well, Revelation 19, 11 tells us about the return of King Jesus. And it says this, now John writes, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Oh, he's not on a donkey anymore. Hey, not on a donkey anymore. A white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Loved ones, don't give up. I know it's easy to want to give up. I know it's easy to want to throw in the towel sometimes. Don't give up. Because our king will return. Today, this humble king comes to you on a donkey 
His triumphal entry is not to conquer the Roman Empire. It's to conquer sin and death. And the people miss that. And so this, this day is, is more than you just get maybe some palms to, to torture your loved ones with. Here we have two great pictures. On the one hand, we have the picture of the rejection of King Jesus. In just a few days, people will be yelling for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Others, maybe I don't know if it's these people or other people, we don't really know. Some probably hired mob will be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so here we have the picture of of the rejection of Jesus, but we also have a wonderful picture of the things to come. Today, King Jesus doesn't come like a man of war killing the enemies of heaven. Today he comes, oddly enough, on a donkey, dying for the enemies of heaven. So the question really is, is this humble, soon to be crucified on a cross and risen from the dead king who will one day return as a judge. The question is, is he your king? Will his glorious returning on his horse be a day for you of great joy or a day of great terror? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you may say, this is kind of scary to me, and it should be. And you can change that today by simply putting your trust in Jesus. Today, King Jesus calls all of us to come to him on his terms, to come to the foot of his cross, to receive him as Savior and Lord, to have our sins forgiven, to have eternal life, And to live for him. Oh, in those days, those people, they took their clothes and they threw them on the road before Jesus. They took their palm branches and they threw them on the road before Jesus. Friend, Jesus calls you to something much, much greater than that. Jesus calls you to take your life and to throw it down at his feet and to worship him as your king and he will be your savior. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray.